That's that's just the reality. Sometimes it just sucks. That's... <laughs> and sometimes things are terrible. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Design Game. We'll talk podcast. about that next time. <laughs> My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What should we talk about on the Design Games podcast this week, Will? Nathan, let's talk about the production process and deciding what we can do ourselves for our games production and what to do when we discover there's something we can't do ourselves. I'm really interested in this. It's a little bit of a meta question, but then it becomes directly relevant, I think, at this stage of the production process that we're starting to talk about. Kind of what what level or what sphere Mm. of publishing do you want to embark into? Because that's going to drive a lot of the decisions outside of the ones that come directly out of the vision for your game and what's appropriate for it to be produced as and all that stuff. Right. So the the three kind of tiers that I think about, and tiers is kind of a weird word. It implies that you go up from one to another, and I don't think that's yeah, necessarily I don't think that's true. Yeah. So maybe three spheres might be a little... Yeah, the circles of... Yeah. yeah. And these are broad ones, and maybe we can complicate this, this a little bit with your thoughts. But what I tend to think about is there's the full-on DIY, do everything yourself, pick your battles mode... Or, or sphere of publishing. Mm-hmm. There's the assemble the team, you know, hire specialists for each part of the thing and get them together and then run the project sphere. And then there's kind of a, a middle ground of do what you can and hire people to do what you can't or right. that you don't want to. Right. Right. Which are kind of two different things. Yeah. And yeah. For me, different. I do different projects in different modes. Usually smaller projects are more... DIY, or I do everything except like illustration. I usually hire artists because I don't do illustration very well. So that's kind of like the first and third of what I was just saying. And then something bigger like Worldwide Wrestling. I mean, I still did a lot of it. Um, Like I could have hired people to do things that I decided to do myself, but Mm -hmm. I definitely did more like hiring of specialists to handle certain things because that was worth it to me. The product would be better for having done that. Right. And and you've done different approaches for different games. Yes. Like you've had very DIY games. You've had worldwide wrestling is closer to your kind of third sphere, your Mm -hmm. wider sphere. Yeah. We're like the team. mm -hmm. How do you how did you decide game by game or even more just specifically Mm -hmm. on worldwide wrestling? How did you decide that that was Mm going to be the, the approach for that game? Part of it is the cost-benefit analysis because when you start hiring people to do things, you have to pay them, right? right and right. so as someone who's trying to run you know, run a business, I have to be like, am I going to generate the money to cover paying these people out right. of this project? Is their contribution going to elevate it to the point where they pay for themselves, essentially? Right. So for Worldwide Wrestling, I was like, this is the kind of project that is going to generate that. Also, you know, I was doing Kickstarter, so crowdfunding makes it easier to make that decision, I think. But yeah, I think this is going to be a bigger game that's going to be available in a little more wider distribution. More people are going to be playing it. So it makes sense to invest in an editor to help check me on my organizational thoughts and also like the text itself. Mm-hmm. It makes sense to hire multiple artists. So, so I can kind of highlight different kind of levels of importance, different art, like the cover artist, the interior artist, and the gimmick artist are, are different people. Mm-hmm. Those are three different kinds of art for the book. It, it strikes me that Worldwide Wrestling is also having character art for mm-hmm. this game is very important. Whereas for some games, you know, you need two or three good character illustrations to convey something and you got it or not even that necessarily you just need a couple of them or whatever it is but for this having that breadth and quality of art 
it seems to me that this would be one of those things that that comes out of the vision early on, as you say, we need yeah. to be able to see these wrestlers. A little bit. And also, it was important to me to use the art to create a more inclusive atmosphere mm-hmm. than might be assumed just by the genre. Wrestling has a very problematic relationship with gender diversity in particular, and also racial diversity in its own kind of unique way. So the art direction, for the most part, included, I want to showcase a diversity of body types mm-hmm. and visible gender and ethnic diversity between these, you know, 10 character portraits. Right. And like I talk about it in the text as well, but at the table, most people are looking at the sheets and shuffling through the sheets. Right. And seeing that diversity of art, I think, does make it more approachable for people to play against their their identity if they want to or be in the mindset of like, okay, cool. Like it's you can play a female wrestler in this game and it's no big deal. Right. uh, Which was important to me. I want to drill down on something, but before I do, I want to talk about part of the hiring process. And the Mm -hmm. reason I want to do that is because it's going to externalize some stuff. So we're going to talk about the the widest sphere where you're hiring teams. The externalizing, how explaining like art direction or editing, explaining this stuff to a hire, I think is a good way to explain to ourselves what we're doing too. Mm -hmm. So in the case of like art direction, for example, what does the art direction for worldwide wrestling look like? Like, did you specify this wrestler is this combination of traits or how did you uh, achieve diversity in those 10 initial wrestlers, for example? I had the advantage of working with, for those first ones, working with uh, primarily a comics illustrator who already does like that kind of thing. Uh, and he's Ramon Villalobos. He's doing great work for some some Marvel books now. So I managed to catch him like right before he got really busy doing, uh, you know, famous comic books. Anyway, and, and so he was already kind of on board with that direction because that's the, he, a lot of his pinups and fan art, quote unquote fan art, but uh, kind of the mashup kind of stuff that he was doing was already doing that. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I have kind of a light touch with art direction. I usually try to contract artists where I already like their work um, and I want to showcase their style. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's mostly about content and and their character, their standalone character portraits on no background. So like there wasn't a whole lot of detail because I wanted to see where he went with the basic like I want this many people who are obviously women, this many people who are obviously non-white and go ahead and mix and match however you're inspired and and go to town. And then that ended up working out pretty well. For like the cover art, it's a little more traditional art direction, I guess, where I kind of came up with a couple options for what I thought could be cool and kind of went to uh, the artist and said, here's the scene. Here's the characters in the scene. Here's what they're doing. I definitely need space in these areas for titles and text. Right. Let's go from there. And then the way that uh, Eric Quigley, who did the art, the cover art for the original book and the supplement, the way that he works is he does grayscale blocking Thumbnails. To work it out. Yeah, thumbnails. Yeah, yeah. So we just went through and kind of like worked on the thumbnails until the spacing all looked right. And then I was just like, all right, go to town. And, you know, from there on, it was mostly him asking me questions and me giving him feedback on stuff that he was having. Like, I'm not sure if this person should be here or here. And what should the facial expression be? Like that kind right. of stuff where I was the sounding board for him. Cool. Yeah, that's I mean, that's very close to how I do it now. Um, I've been, depending on the project, I've been very specific. Mm-hmm. I've been very hands-off. And I, I, I kind of do a middle ground thing now where I, I start with a, what I think of as a middle degree of specificity. Mm-hmm. And then I'm what I'm very clear about is how much or how rapidly I'm comfortable moving in either direction. I, I was an illustration student for a while. I have some knowledge of 
composition and blocking and stuff to help some of this stuff out. But mm-hmm. I don't want to do I don't want to do the fun part for the artist. I want them to be able to do the fun part. I right. want them to have a good time doing it too. I don't want to give them thumbnails and be like, here, just do this one. But that I try to make it very clear that I can move in either direction and how much. So I can be like, look, I want this character in this in the centerpiece, but I have a lot of open options on the background. I can get more specific if you want me to, but mm-hmm. we can revisit that after thumbnails or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or I say, I, I need a character here. I, we have these five signature characters, let's say. Which one grabs you? And then I can do more detailed notes if you want them once you've picked a character. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. And what I found is that the more effort that I put in up front to do that, to create that atmosphere, the easier and more successful art direction is thereafter, mm-hmm. as opposed to some of the on-staff jobs where, we, where art direction had to get done you know, twice a month. I'd mm-hmm. have to do art notes for different D20 books or whatever. It was a steady, steady stream of art direction because I would say, well, we're, it's this monster. It looks like this. It has to match the text. And the text is already written and locked. Mm. So then the art notes, uh, the, the initial illustration comes back and I'm like, yeah, but it can't have horns because that's not in the, mm-hmm. that would change its stats or whatever. And so that kind of back and forth of fiddliness um, was a thing. Mm-hmm. But when I work for myself, I like to hire art early so that I can change the text to the art. If the artist comes with a cool thing, I'm yeah. like, yeah, let's give that monster antlers. Absolutely. Look mm-hmm. at that. That's beautiful. Because it's my text and it's ultimately our art. To loop back into the the DIY sphere yeah that's kind of the advantage of having fewer collaborators mm-hmm. is that when you're the center point and you're making the majority of those decisions you can do that kind of stuff like be inspired by the art and bring that back into the game text or when you're doing layout you can go ahead and just do rewrites to do copy fitting instead of having to go back and forth with the original text and an editor and right. um, one one big advantage is it just streamlines the whole process of course it means that you're the you're the choke point for the process right it ends up being directly affected by your work style and your workflow um, in terms right. of going from beginning to end and the human hours in one day right yeah but you do have a lot of time and confusion savings from not having to go back and forth, even between two people, let alone three or four people, if you need to bounce a decision back and forth until it's made. Right. It's interesting to me that that that's the case, because the reason that the multi-step handoff process that I'm used to, or that I was used to for so long in production at a publishing house Mm. is designed is to streamline so that you don't have to go back and make these kind of decisions. And when an individual checks with themselves and says, yeah, I want to change the text, that can be still a headache to be like, well, I'm going to go back and change the text on this. Mm. But because you are both the artist and the approval person, that bottleneck mm. is also doing an, an important job in regards to the vision of the game. Mm. It's adhering to that vision. And the multi-step process, which I should be clear how this worked, is that it would be that we would do the writing development of the, of the text. When the text was done, the last thing I would do would be art notes mm-hmm. that would go to the art director. Then the art director would revise the art notes based on the artist that they were hiring. So if I would just give them essentially, look, this is roughly a piece of art every X number of pages, depending on the book. This is something that I think would be cool to illustrate or would be advantageous to the reader to have illustrated. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of, like, for example, like a vampire bloodline, every bloodline gets a portrait or whatever. So here's the portrait. Here's my note for the portrait on this one. Then the art director can change that. Generally not the substance, but things like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna add in some more diversity or I'm going to make these two the same gender so that so I can hire the same artist. I know that artist is going to make really badass uh, lady vampires or something. And then this other artist is doing these other two, so I'm going to change one of them so that we still have the same parody, but that mm-hmm. I'm you know, mixing it up, whatever. These sorts of things might happen. But that never comes back to me in the sense that if the art director wants to change the art, I see it when the art is done. Mm-hmm. Because I'm on to the next book at that point. And right. so bringing it back is actually creating more static and friction mm-hmm. and eating into each other's time and all that work and stuff. But what it also means is that I couldn't do the stuff I wanted to do, which is get art early enough 
to say, I know we have a vampire clan in this or a vampire bloodline in this ideological territory, and I want it. I want the artist to be able to have some freedom to tell me if I say, you know, Eastern European assassin vampires from before the dawn of time, I want to be able to write to some of that art. I mm-hmm. want to be able to get ideas that are more than just what we're going to put on the page. I want a visual element that's going to spark it. And that just wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. That handoff process, which is in a lot of industries. Yeah. And it is optimized for things where you have like a set schedule mm-hmm. and you need to get things done at a time and you have someone who's in charge of getting the thing done at the time. The, the products end up, you know, theoretically, they end up coming out on that schedule and to that level of kind of quality that you can assume based on the people you have working on it. But they can suffer from that idea of like, oh, this text and this art isn't really as synced up as it could be for whatever reason. Or worse to me is where there's an assumption that they are Mm -hmm. in the in the audience that the art is trying to say something to the text oh sure yeah or the text is trying to to say something to the art and the way they interact is trying to say a Mm -hmm. thing when really what it is is just no they don't they're just kind of roughly conveying the same general subject with the two different takes on it there is no auteur style vision which Mm -hmm. can be fine in a production sense and when you have a lot of people for hire that are all temporary on the project you need a vision that persists beyond any one art director or any one developer or whatever which is i think a shame but in the nature of especially the the old publication treadmill was the nature of the beast You know, I think about this, too, in terms of, like, film production, right, where mm-hmm. a director gets the say, generally, of what a movie is going to be like, but the studio gets the say in who's going to be the director, and the studio can run interference on a director if they feel they need to, or for any of a variety of reasons. There are a lot of possibilities for, I will say interference, but sometimes what I mean is for assistance or for salvation, for redemption of a film when a director gets in over their head or whatever. I mean, there, there are good and bad reasons for these things to happen. Right. But because that's a complete succinct project, a film is a film. And I think very often a game is a game. But in the supplement treadmill world, where a line is more the expression of, of the world or the genre or the material than any one book is, mm-hmm. that need to, to make people a little bit interchangeable. So that, for example, if, if there is a backup somewhere, you can say, well, we're going to have the art director from this other game come in and do this one book. Mm-hmm. They know how to do it. Right. It's going to be roughly the same as it would be with the normal person. Right, with yeah. the regular, yeah, staff. But it also means that there is the, there's the appearance of, of auteurness that doesn't exist. And for me, for example, it's the case of if you're the developer, then you sign off on this stuff. And I'm like, well, I do to the extent that I was the last one to go through the book and then give it the check mark to go to press. Right. But I didn't actually have the power, for example, almost ever, mm-hmm. to send a book back. Sure, yeah. All I could do was understand what I was going to get credit and blame for mm-hmm. and then send it to press because we are on a timetable. I think there's a really interesting modern version of this that is managing to to kind of do both, kind of preserve an, uh, a level of auteurship, but mm-hmm. also be a lot of material for one game. And that's looking at stuff in the Lamentations of the Flame Princess mm-hmm. world and the uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics world. Yeah. Specifically, I mean, the, yeah. the OSR writ large, but I think those two games specifically are doing a really good job of creating a platform for people to do modules and settings and all kinds of little supplemental things that express individual vision as their own little unit. Right. But are still part of this larger umbrella of being a Lamentations thing. There's still a... There are vibes and characteristics. Yeah, and, there's still yeah. an aesthetic that unifies these things in addition to like how however the rule system is being expressed. Mm-hmm. They all go together in a, in a piece, in a body of work, but the individual authors still are are very evident in each right. supplement. And each of those supplements has its own opportunities to be as DIY or multi-author or whatever as they want. Right. The way I've always thought of, thought of it, you're right, these are those are terrific examples of this of this sort of interstitial state of the game's audience to the individual creator mm-hmm. is that they they're the spotlight 
kind of at the center of the circle that says this is what Lamentations or this is what Dungeon Crawl Classics is about. And then the audience can be the judge of how far an individual work is a field from that spotlight, right, both, right. based both on the creator and on its execution. And it's not a question of that distance is a measure of quality mm-hmm. or of accuracy, right? It's a measure of I'm intentionally going as far away from DCC while still being within the light of DCC. Right. Because I want to do this thing that's a little contrary or a little exciting, whatever somebody might say, you know, that's a little different, but also definitely that still orbits DCC. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, the the games in which that happens, sometimes it happens almost accidentally, or I should say by happenstance, and sometimes it happens very much by design. Because think about how that relates to, for example, your Powered by the Apocalypse stuff in general, mm-hmm. which doesn't have necessarily an aesthetic. There are a lot of aesthetics at work. I mean, it's not, sometimes you can see, you know, the direct branches in the family tree from Apocalypse World or Dungeon World or what have you. But the way that... Essentially, the, the mechanics have an aesthetic. Yes. You know, yeah, and yeah. so they have that same. I, I think one part of it, and I don't, I'm not privy to the details, but from the outside, one thing specifically about the lamentation stuff mm-hmm. that I think is a difference is that, and apologies if I pronounce this wrong, I actually don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced, but um, James Raggi, or Raggi, R-A-G-G-I, if you are unfamiliar, a lot of the at least of the the more um, higher end or or higher bandwidth supplements mm. for lamentations, he still produces them. He has this great printer in Finland or Sweden or something. He ha- he has a, a relatively local printer that he can work with to do really fantastic visual production mm-hmm. of these titles. And so they're still like in his world. They're, they're still his production, even though they're they are. In the traditional sense, in the in the supplement treadmill sense, they're still supplements. They're still written by right. contractors and and whatever, and they have a lot of freedom to do whatever they want, basically, as long as he thinks it's cool. Uh, again, apologies if I'm misrepresenting this, but this is how it seems from the outside. And he signs off on it, and then he makes it a beautiful book, right? Mm-hmm. Apocalypse World stuff does not have any production relationship to Vincent. Right. Anyone can do a Power by the Apocalypse thing. Anyone can publish it any way they want. Uh, he asks to be credited. That's basically it. Right. And I'm sure if you went to him and were like, hey, will you publish my Power by the Apocalypse game? Uh, I would suspect that he would say, I'm not interested in doing that. Right. Um, again, my, my assumption on that end. But that difference, I think, creates a very different sense of here's a game line with supplements, mm-hmm. but they still preserve that auteur vision of each individual one mm-hmm. versus here's the shared system yeah. and has that the system similarity, but the aesthetics and the overall production and the quality level and all those things are more directly related to the person making them. They're not related to Vincent making them. So, for example, art direction and production printing, these are fairly established territories in the sense that who's doing which job, even though you can move the title around from person to person so that mm-hmm. I can be my own layout artist, I can be my own art director, and I can develop the game, and that's all one person, even though that could be three different people. When you get into editorial, I get into an, er- an area that's interesting to me because there's almost no institutional agreement from publisher to publisher what the job of editor means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've edited books in which I've been a copy editor. I've edited books in which that means that I'm a developer. I've edited books in which that means I'm more akin to a film editor or a producer. And whenever somebody says, I want you to edit this thing, or I say to somebody, I want you to be an editor editor on this, the amount of time that I have to spend defining or redefining that role, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it's often beneficial, but it's also not like defining any other role in the life of an RPG, in my mm-hmm. experience, or a game of any kind. 
Because the question is, how much authority and responsibility does an editor have? There are certain built-in responsibilities, I think, which is that obviously you can't, don't make a thing worse. <laughs> right. Don't introduce new errors and don't shrink the audience without somebody's approval. In other words, don't make it harder to read. Mm -hmm. But what are the authorities that one has? So that if an editor says, these chapters are in the wrong order, I might say, you're mistaken. That's a game design decision. I made a decision. I know what order the chapters go in. Mm -hmm. I've made my decision. Um, and I, and my, I'm very much of the opinion that an editor should be free to make that suggestion, mm -hmm. but an editor is not free to make that change. Uh, I mean, also developer is a title that doesn't exist everywhere. For some people, developer is the designer. For some people, it's it's the person who often overlaps, but doesn't necessarily uh, overlap with the designer. And the developer realizes the product. But yeah. there's so many, these are all terms that are so fuzzy. And my, my background, like I have no idea what I would define a developer as. Right. Just because I've always been doing independent publishing and... The designer, the writer, the editor, and the developer are often the same person. Right. And is the developer just a project manager? In some right. cases, that's the I say just. That's, like mm -hmm. I said, that's easy to do. It's very hard to do. Yeah. But it's another term for project manager, in which case, of course, in DIY, of course, you're the project manager. Mm -hmm. You have to juggle all your own responsibilities. I don't think I'm telling the story out of school, but when we merged with CCP at White Wolf back in the day, one of the hilarious intersections of responsibilities and duties and stuff was that developer and designer meant exactly the opposite things at the two different companies. Oh, really? So almost any freelancer could arguably be a designer if they were designing powers for it. Mm -hmm. A developer was the person who oversaw everything and said, this is going in, this is not going in, this needs to be changed, the, the director of the line mm -hmm. to a point, not necessarily the brand, but of the series of books. And so the hierarchy went at White Wolf designer up to developer because the developer could override the designer. Mm -hmm. At CCP, as I understood it, the opposite was true. It was this jobs were very similar, but the titles were reversed. So it was very curious when people would say, well, you're a developer. You just help make the thing happen. The designer is the vision. They have the, the creative directing power to right. say what's going to happen. And then I think about how that then relates to various other categories of, if you will, show business, of mm -hmm. creative business. And I think about the fact that the director is a director, the developer is a studio guy, and the designers are all generally queens and kings of individual silos inside the thing. Mm -hmm. Costume designer, set designer, prop designer. Right. But they're all responding to the overall vision from the director. Right. Yeah. And, and development is essentially not a creative part of the process. I mean, it's creative in the sense that it's productive, but mm -hmm. it is not creative in the sense that it is one of those jobs. So the title of developer is obviously kind of a weird nexus of different jobs in different industries. But what's odd to me is that editor is two yeah. in that yeah. It is in different industries a very different point on the food chain. Mm -hmm. And in RPGs, it is not any one point on the food chain. Right. So like in film, the editor's job is pretty clear, even though how much power they exert can vary from film to film. There are movies that they say, some of them classic movies, in which they were essentially made by the editor. But so how much is that allowed to happen for your game, right, mm -hmm. is the question of do you take it to somebody so that the editor will say, I will now take your raw footage and make it what you wanted it to be? Or is the editor's job to say, this reads the way you wanted it to read. I fixed the type. Like there's copy mm -hmm. editing, there's content editing, there's structural editing. Right. And adding words in front of the word editor, in my experience, only sometimes makes things clearer. Mm -hmm. One thing to keep in mind is that having these conversations like, oh, you want me to edit your thing? What does that mean? Or I want to hire an editor. What do I actually want? In the aggregate over time, it is a little frustrating to have that same conversation over and over. I mean, I do that too, sure. right? But I think it's usually pretty healthy for an individual project because Absolutely. it is way more important that you and anyone else working with you on your project are on the same page and share the goal. Yeah. That's way more important than having some kind of high level shared universal understanding of like what this job does. 
sure into, yeah. to me i guess the, the thing that i find frustrating isn't having that conversation it's that i have to have that conversation i have to i'm always the one to instigate it oh yeah 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 right and that i'm like somebody says i want you to edit and i go okay mm-hmm. but i still don't know what you want but me to what do you want yeah so now i, I have to retype the same thing mm-hmm. i type every time which is how many of these 10 things do you want me to do <laughs> yeah I share that frustration. I mean, that's the thing. As the expert, like when someone comes to you for a thing, you're the expert. And Mm -hmm. they're often coming to you because they are not educated in that field, right? So when I started thinking about it a little more as part of my job is educating clients in Mm -hmm. addition to doing the work that they want, it became a lot easier for me to rewrite those same emails over and over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because, yeah, I'm very comfortable doing that with new clients, new to the hobby or new to the industry Mm -hmm. or new to me clients. What what gets me is when I have to do, when somebody comes to me and says, that's not what editing is. And I and I have to not say you don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. By which not by which I mean you have it wrong, mm-hmm. by which I mean you don't have the whole picture. It's not that everybody else is wrong. It's that the term is malleable. The, the, the term is is not a particularly consistent consistent term. Yeah. Getting back to these different ways of publishing, realistically, what we both do uh, for the most part, and what I think most people listening to us are going to be in the zone of is that DIY or DIY plus kind of sphere where you're doing your best with what you have. And we've talked about making decisions that best suit your game and and that kind of thing and letting your vision guide what you want the end product to be. Mm -hmm. But once you kind of had that in place with the assumption that you have gone through that process functionally and you you have a plan, where and how do you make decisions about what do I need to hire someone else to do or what do I need to learn to do to make this happen. Do you find that there's any patterns for you about making the, the, those decisions? There certainly is. I was going to ask you the same question. And it's um, for me, the, the answer is I, first of all, will always attempt to do too much on my own game. Mm-hmm. And the more I realize that, the earlier in the process I, I start deciding either that something isn't going to happen because I can't do it, it's going to have to be done by somebody else. Mm-hmm. I generally don't do my own art because I'm not the illustrator I want to be. I'm working on it, but I'm not close. I love doing my own layout, so that's mm-hmm. a given. That's generally not on the table because I love the fact that I can add two words to a paragraph so that I to, to make it flow around text right or I can take a word out and I'm the boss of that and it doesn't matter. Yep, same here. I love doing cover design, not necessarily the art, but the, the cover layout and stuff. I love all the yep. book design stuff. So that, that's not really on the table. Mm-hmm. The questions come down to things like handouts or character sheets. I find that that having somebody else design a character sheet, not necessarily the character sheet, is, is akin to the editing process for me because it helps mm-hmm. me say, I know the following things have to go on this page but I don't know how much baggage and how many weights I've tied to them based on my assumption that this thing needs to be in the upper left-hand corner. And then I give it to somebody else and they say, it doesn't have to be there. Mm-hmm. Could, and then I see that there's a better sheet, sheet in there somewhere. There's a great example. Uh, John Stavropoulos made a very concise note to me on the, one of the early character sheets for Dark. And, and he was his note was absolutely correct. His prescription to fix it, I think, was sound, but wasn't what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so I kept the two of them stuck together too much instead of breaking them in half and being like, okay, well, so his note is correct. I have to change this, but I don't have to change it the way he said I have to change it. Mm-hmm. And so for too long, I didn't make the change. And then once I finally came back and I said, no, of course he's right. And I, and I accepted that I could pull apart those two notes. And that was a teaching moment for me just in the sense of also like what I can do myself in the end and what I have to rope people in on. Mm-hmm. I very much want to be able to show off a thing. This is not, I'm not recommending this practice. <laughs> this is the thing that I do is that I want to be able to show off a thing and say, here, it's done. Here's yeah. a thing. 
But so as a result, a lot of the middle ground stuff that I will eventually hand off gets handed off due to requirement, not due to vision. So it gets handed off because there just isn't time or because I just don't know how to do – I can't paint art for playing cards or whatever it is. In which case also I love – once I do that, make that decision, I love giving freedom to the people who are going to do it so that they can do really, really great work that I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So at the far one end of the spectrum is the stuff that I know I'm going to do. In the middle is a bunch of stuff that game by game changes whether or not I'm going to attempt it or not and mm-hmm. then – whether or not my attempts succeed will determine whether or not I farm it out. And the far right end, the thing that I always farm out is an editing pass. Hmm. But I'm very clear that I almost never want structural editing. That's game design to me because the book is part of the UI. And also because it's often I'm experimenting with things like, well, what happens if I put character creation in the back or whatever, these kind <laughs> right, of right, concepts. Yeah. But an editing pass in which somebody reads this book and tells me, is it to somebody who hasn't been neck deep in it for months, does it even read is remotely the way I think it does? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I definitely, that's, that's a lot of what I look for from editing as well, uh, where it's like, I've been immersed in this for some way too long span of time. Yeah. Here is a thing that I think is good enough to go to an editor, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's functionally complete. Uh, I don't think there's any major things I'm missing. But I need someone not just to, like, read it and tell me, like, oh, yeah, this made sense, right? But to, I think, doing that formal, I'm going to hire you as an editor ups the ante for that person to really dig into it and, and do that job, whatever the specifics of it are. Right. But I, I think there's a functional difference between like, hey, I'm looking for like readers or reviewers to like look at this and give me feedback that's not just me looking at it, which is a functional stage of the process. Yeah. But engaging someone on some kind of professional basis to use their skill set that includes not only I know how this is supposed to work because I'm an experienced you know game editor and I know this style of game. But I also know that this is not the best way to phrase it. Or I also know that this is confusing when you compare it with this passage that's three pages before it or that kind of thing. It's about consistency again. Yeah, consistency is really – I think consistency is the hardest thing to maintain as an individual writer, editor. It's really easy to to make a change in Chapter 4 and think that you've made that change to -hmm. uh, to agree with it in Chapter 2. Because to you, the whole thing, you just – you changed it. The old one is dead. Yeah, but then there's those artifacts where it's like, oh, I mentioned this in passing two drafts ago and I completely forgot about it and here's this reference that's actually referencing a rule that no longer exists, right? Or something right. like that. Like, or the, the one that gets me is the, the thing that I do where I think I have said a thing in a text mm-hmm. because I said it two drafts ago, but then I mm. cut it or restated it in a way that means that at the same time that I pulled it out, some of the roots of something else came with it. So an editor will tell me, are you aware that you never tell me what kind of dice I'm rolling? <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh. no. Mm-hmm. I just assumed that if I said dice, you knew I meant six-sider. I should be clear. Yeah. Or whatever. Womp, womp. Yeah. What about you? What kind of patterns have emerged about what you do and don't do yourself? The length of the text is a big driver for me. I'm more interested in having longer texts edited. For example, I really like hiring artists. So I try to look for excuses to hire mm-hmm. artists when I can. Mm-hmm. But also the economics of my stuff is such that I don't have huge lavish art budgets. What I tend to do is I, I, I build up a just like a, an art fund over time. And then when I have enough money in it to buy something, I'm like, okay, who can I hire to do a cool thing for right. my next thing? Yeah. So smaller projects kind of roll forward so that my as time goes on, I'm able to get more art for everything, which is nice. Yeah, I don't know. I'm in the same boat with like layout. Like I like doing that part. Cover design, I like doing that part. I've been in an interesting thing recently, specifically for for the Worldwide Wrestling Supplement, where I did a little more contracting out of writing both the essays and also I was approached about doing like a little additional piece uh, for the Kickstarter that I decided to do as a standalone little PDF that 
was for backers and will be available pretty soon with the other digital supplements. And that was probably the first time that I've really done something more akin to the developer role where someone else basically had the idea for for the set of rules. It's, it's called The Road. And uh, it's all about running a session of the game in between shows. So it's like the wrestlers on the road getting from town to town, cool. right? It's very cool. And so Adam, the, the guy who had the idea, approached me about doing it. We figured out a, a deal. And uh, yeah, so he sent me rules. And so I both did some editing, like text editing on my end, like I rewrote some things and kind of cleaned up some language so that it matched my square quotes, my, my uh, uh, house style for that game, the line style for how it phrases things and stuff like that. Uh, and also like revised moves. Like this is a great idea for a move. The fictional stuff all makes total sense. The outcomes, this one's a little weak. I'm going to change it to a different mechanical outcome because mm -hmm. that matches the rest of the moves better, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that was an interesting experience because I haven't really done that kind of thing before, which is to say that came out of someone approaching me and asking me to do it. Right. So maybe there's an opportunity there to go look for that in the future for other other projects. I don't know. Scope is a big, my main mm. thing. Like, how big is this, both in terms of the text and how big is the audience I think is going to be encountering it? Once you start working with somebody who that you're bringing into your vision or that comes willingly and happily into it of their own accord because they've been so persuaded by the work or, or they've just shared the idea or whatever it is, that house style guide or outline for how you're going to write the book. For me as a developer, the number one creative thing that I would do at White Wolf, for example, was the synopsis or design guide for the book. Mm -hmm. And those, some of those, were, I think some of the best work that I've done writing for RPGs has never been seen by the audience. It's the stuff that I write for the writers to tell them what it is we're going to be doing. Just because I'm curious, yeah. what's kind of the proportion between how much you would write to the length of the finished book? Highly variable, but based on the following. The more authors there are, the more I would write mm. to bring them all into the same tent. The more different subjects the book covers, the more I would write so that it was clear which chapter got to do which thing. Mm -hmm. The more experimental the book, the more I had to write because I had to write the whole fence line around the entire strangely shaped sandbox. Mm -hmm. For example, I think the, the longest one that I ever wrote and the most detailed, and I don't I don't have the document anymore, but I know one of the writers kept it and just keeps saying, keeps threatening to send it back to me because he loved it so much, <laughs> is the one for the Requiem Chronicles Guide. Mm -hmm. Because that's, a, that's one in which each of the writers has almost total freedom, but I didn't want to be in a position where I had to reject or rewrite something because it stepped on somebody else's toes. Mm -hmm. So I had to create a, a situation where each of the writers can write their own thing, provided they know what the boundaries of their thing are, so they're not writing somebody else's thing. The idea was essentially everybody gets to come in and do a hack of Vampire, the Requiem. Right. And so they're kind of about individual instances of play, but at the campaign level, not adventures, but a, a bigger scale. And so I had to break down to a very real extent what it was that I wanted Vampire, the Requiem to be. And this was earlier, this is like literally like my second day on the job. I think I may have started this before I was in Atlanta. So I had to boil down the vision for what was and wasn't the game in a way that the rule book doesn't do because the rule book wants certain things to be emergent that the synopsis or description of a book wants to make overt. Right, right, right. And that separation of what is overt and what is emergent and being able to say it both ways so that writers can emerge or let things emerge that are in alignment with what the game is about was a super valuable skill for me that I carry back into my own DIY stuff and that I write all kinds of notes myself. Some of them are, are intentionally emergent where I will write, if you will, around a subject without actually saying that the following is true in the game. Mm -hmm. And I will write certain things to myself that I will never show to a player mm. that says, this is a great tactic. I won't just say this is a great tactic. I want you to find out it's a great tactic. Mm. Or the game is about this, but I will never say that. Right. 
these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, I will show it, but I will never say it. I feel like a lot of that stuff ends up in notes and outlines and early drafts, yeah. right? And then as you go through the process, you kind of learn what can be encoded in the text and what... And what, yeah, what gets conveyed and what gets yeah. said outright. And that's one of those things to me that is in the house style guide, which also includes things like, I really don't like it when a rule book assumes that I will be playing the game, but I am not right now. I don't like a book oh, that says okay. will be. Mm-hmm. You will find, no, I'm playing it right now. I have the rule book open. Mm. Tell me what's happening. If you say will and you don't say when, you're only doing half a job. If you don't say will, then I assume you're saying both what I'm doing and when I'm doing it, which is now. And that's one of those things that is in every one of my style guides. I remind myself of it all the time. That and the phrase in order to, just say two. And don't say each when you mean both and don't say both when you mean each. But these uh, these sorts of things are about clarity. Mm-hmm. And I bring that up because those, they're the kind of things that are in a house style guide that are very mechanical, even though they're not game mechanics. Yeah. They're, very, they're very systemic. Similar things can be said about tone and subtext and atmosphere. In Vampire, I inherited from Justin Achille the statement that we never use the phrase each day. We say each night yeah. because vampires don't see the day, mm-hmm. right? These sorts of things. And yeah. some of that is very artistic. And some of that is, and then some of it becomes mm-hmm. very artistic where you just say never refer to the month. Yeah. Never refer to what time of year it is because you don't know what, we don't know when the game mm-hmm. is set, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think one thing you can do uh, when you're working on your game is harness those opportunities to kind of use those to aid in creating your voice. Yeah. I, d- I just use the word wrestlers instead of characters. Right. Just as a style thing. Like, like it's functionally the same. I can say that the player's characters, but I say the player's wrestlers because that's the reality of the game. The characters are the players are playing wrestlers. Right. I just recently actually made that similar. I think it I'm almost positive specifically because of D&D 5 and Worldwide Wrestling <laughs> that now players and thieves in dark because mm-hmm. players are never should never be thieves. Right. Stealing is wrong. Yeah, so but your characters are always are thieves. Are always thieves, right? <laughs> well, and I in in Masks of the Mummy, Mummy Kings I did this on purpose because it is inspired by Swords Without Master, uh your rogues. So right. players and rogues because you could deep cut Pro tip, you could take your Swords Without Master character and play them in Mask of the Mummy Kings right. if you wanted to. Just saying. I think this this shows, again, how each of these processes informs and strengthens the other, whether or not you're actually going to do both or not. Mm-hmm. To think about the DIY plus mode. Yeah. To think in a way about how, if you were hiring yourself, mm. you would communicate your vision to the person doing that job, mm-hmm. even if you end up doing the job yourself. Yeah, I, I think, think it's super helpful. Yeah, that's really that's a really good idea. Like you're, the way you phrase that is very uh, strong to me, and it makes me think kind of like the idea of how the GM isn't a person; they're a set of of responsibilities and authorities. Mm. The things that need to happen to produce your game are a set of responsibilities and authorities separating out what you what you need and what you want right and then saying okay which of these can i do yeah which of these can i learn to do or do i want to learn to do and then which of these should i get an expert involved cuz i mean we say hire as shorthand like there are arrangements where you know maybe you you trade you know work for work or bring someone in on a on on some creative basis like they get part of the game and you're not paying them up front or whatever. There's lots of different ways to pay people. Right. As long as everybody has the agency and authority to make those decisions for themselves. Right. I think it's fair. Right. But generally, yeah, it's like, what can I do? What can I learn to do? And what can I pay someone else to do? And you can look at all the tasks that your game needs and figure out which mode am I going for? Sometimes it's like, oh, I can do everything but this. Maybe I'll learn to do that. Maybe that's one of my 
personal goals for growth with this game, right? right? Extend your own portfolio of abilities. Or sometimes it's like, oh, I could pay someone to do this, but I'm not sure if I want to get into that relationship right now. Right. So maybe this just won't be part of this game. Uh, that's what the last thing I was going to say that reveals itself in this step of the process is between the decision to do these things and the actual doing of them, the diamond contracts one more time mm. into a point of validation and, and checking. Absolutely. In which you say, so I can't do this. No, I don't know anybody who I can equitably trade with to do it, money or services or whatever to do it. Mm. What happens if the game doesn't have it? Or what happens if... Like if, I, if my game doesn't have character illustration or if I don't have moves mm -hmm. for, the, for the sword fighting stuff or if I just use public domain available art in legal ways to use my swords and stuff, these sorts of options. But to re-examine some of the decisions that you've made and say, so what happens if? And ideally, you reach the same decision you made before, which is that you say, no, my vision is that I'm going to have these. I'm going to find a way to make it work. But every once in a while, you might say, you know what, I'm going to cut the number, the amount of art in half or something like that. And that's just, a, that's just the reality of production. Thank you for listening to the Design Games Podcast. This was a really great conversation, but sometimes our conversations go a little further afield. When that happens, we make them into backer-exclusive episodes, which only our Patreon backers get to hear. Become a Patreon backer of the Design Games Podcast by supporting Nathan or Will. Visit patreon.com slash ndpauletta or patreon.com slash wordwill. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just... 